Well, for some of you, this is the chapter you've been waiting for or not waiting for, <laughs> chapter 9 of, of Romans. It's certainly one of the most controversial chapters in all of the Bible, not just in the book of Romans. And I've been looking forward to being here because I hope to, to be able to clarify some of what Paul says to help you, uh, help you by the end of our time today to think of this chapter as one of the most uplifting, confidence-building chapters in all of Scripture with regard to what God is doing in your life and what God is doing in our world. So as you turn to that passage, let me direct you to a parallel passage. It's a magnificent one in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I say this is a magnificent passage because it contains such a lofty statement, many challenging words and phrases. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God predestined us for adoption to himself according to the purpose of his will. That's expansive time. It's before the foundation of the world's big words like predestined concepts from which many of us tend to shy away because they are often controversial in the church. But the word elect occurs 19 times in the ESV. And I just choose the ESV. You'll have similar word elect maybe 20 times in the New King James or whatever, but we'll just do the ESV. 19 times ESV, the word predestined five times. That's 24 separate passages utilizing those two words alone. And there are many more verses that speak of God's choosing, enabling, appointing according to his will and purposes. And so at some point or another, we have to come to grips with what these terms and words mean. So let's all agree that we will approach God's word this morning with an open mind, with a teachable spirit. After all, we should not be afraid to roll up our sleeves because the scripture tells us that we are workmen who are not uh, to be ashamed, who are rightly dividing truth from error. Now we spent several months in chapters 1 through 8. And you may remember from chapter 1 that Paul said that all men and women are without excuse. He wrote that it isn't that men and women exist in ignorance. That's not the point. A lost person doesn't just wander in ignorance of God waiting for someone to share with him or her the truth. The Bible says that we clearly see the attributes. That's what Paul said in Romans 1. We clearly see the attributes of God displayed in the creation around us, and we actively, what? What did it say? 
We actively suppress the truth. We push it down. Our rebellion is active. It's not passive. We choose to reject God. And that's the first of several crucial points that I want you to remember. We actively rebel against God, and because of that, we are without excuse. No person unfairly goes to hell. People are sent to hell because they have willfully rebelled against the holy, perfect God who cannot and will not tolerate the presence of sin. Remember that for later. The result of our rebellion against God was to become what the Bible calls being dead in sin, where sin is our master and we are its slaves. That's why Paul wrote a few chapters later in Romans chapter 3 that there is no person who seeks for God, that all, and underline the word all, all have turned aside and together have become worthless, Paul wrote. No one, in case we thought, well, maybe all didn't really mean all. Maybe it meant most. But then Paul says, no one does good. And then just in case that was maybe ambiguous, he says, not even one. So that removed all question. And those are drastic, absolute statements. Not a single person seeks after God. When we reach slaves to sin, not one of our actions was profitable. And then, as we worked our way through the rest of those chapters, 4 through 8, we're finally here at Romans 9. I'd like you to stand as we read God's Word, starting with verse 1. We're going to read the first five verses, but we'll cover much of the chapter this morning. But this is a good start for us here, Romans chapter 9. This is God's Word, holy, inspired, authoritative for us today. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Pause for a second. Recognize that Paul is saying this is not about being vindictive. This is not about being frustrated and bitter. My conscience bears me witness that I have great sorrow and anguish over my brothers. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And that is a great pause point for Paul, and it's a great pause point for us. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we look at this chapter, as we try to wrestle with these big concepts, I pray for discernment. I pray for receptivity. I pray that you would help us to lay aside whatever it is that we came in thinking in terms of prior experience, prior teaching, reading, studying, whatever it is. Let us be led by your spirit, by your word alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) 
I think many of you parents can identify with Paul's struggle here in these first verses of, of chapter 9. As you think about children grown or, or still at home who are not yet evidencing the fruit of salvation. Paul writes that he's troubled, right? He's, he's ang- in anguish in his heart, he says, over the fact that his brothers, his fellow Israelites who were not saved by the law, that was the clear point of the earlier chapters of Romans, and they're not saved by being children physically of Abraham, and they're not saved by their works, well then, they have no guaranteed right of salvation. And that means that their confidence is in the wrong place. And most of them were in rebellion against God and headed to hell. And that grieved Paul. The Israelites had been so privileged, and that's why he lists them out in those first five verses. They've been so privileged. They've been adopted as the national representative of God. They had received the covenants through Abraham and Moses. They had received the law. God had protected them. Abraham, the Isaac, the patriarchs that Paul mentions, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, others had all been Israelites. Even Christ was an Israelite. But all of these blessings did not guarantee salvation. And to Paul's great sorrow, many Israelites rejected his witness. They treat his words as foolishness. So Paul writes that he has continual grief in his heart, wishing that he himself were accursed from Christ instead of his own countrymen. So did God's word fail? Did the patriarchs example? Did the law, the covenants, even Christ fail? Had God given up on Israel? You see, that would have been a natural question. God, after all, completely out of grace and mercy had established through Abraham's children the nation of Israel. When Israel had become captive to Egypt, God had ultimately rescued her in the Exodus. When Israel was taken into exile by Babylon, God still brought a remnant back under Ezra and others. So why not now? Why wouldn't God rescue Israel from exile under Rome? Wasn't Israel still God's chosen nation? We'll look at verses 6 and 7 for the answer. God's word did not fail, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, Abraham just because they are his offspring. What does that mean, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel? Here's what Paul is saying. There is a physical nation, Israel, but there is also a spiritual nation, Israel, and these two are not always equal. You can have physical Jews who are not saved believers, and you can have saved Gentiles who are not physical Jews. And that's key point two. Salvation is a gift, not a guaranteed right. Or an inherited right. If people do not become members of spiritual Israel, 
by physical birth, such as being you know, descended from Abraham, then how do they become members? Well, Paul will say in just a moment that it is by the elective purpose of God. And to elect something is to choose something. If you consider Abraham, he was born in Ur, a port city in what is now southern Iraq, just above the Persian Gulf. Abraham's family worshipped idols and the pagan gods of that region. And Joshua writes in, in a familiar passage, Joshua 24.2, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Plural polytheistic nation, ancient Sumerian. And out of that godless nation, God called Abraham for no other reason that he chose to do so. There was nothing good in Abraham that forced God to choose him. And even if there was something good about Abraham in contrast to other men and women in Ur, that still did not change the fact that God chose Abraham, took the initiative... Right? And Abraham did not choose God. God went to him, told him to leave his country, and Abraham obeyed. And Paul assumes that everyone would admit that fact. But what about Abraham's children? Likely remember that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. God had promised that a descendant of Abraham would be the Messiah, but because Sarah was unable... To bear children, she and Abraham tried to fulfill God's promise by their own power. And so Abraham, through a servant woman, had a child whom he named Ishmael. Now imagine that you're Abraham. You have a son who is becoming a man. You want him to receive God's blessing as the promised seed. Ishmael is a healthy, strong, and an honoring child. Abraham prays. That's what we read. Genesis prays that God would accept Ishmael as his, heir, as his heir. And I find it interesting that God waits 13 years. It's the age when many young men were considered to pass their first important stage towards manhood, a 12, 13-year period. 13 years to tell Abraham that Ishmael, no, he's not the son of the promise. According to the book of Genesis, Abraham was shocked asks why Ishmael can't be the promised child. Look at verse 8 in Romans 9. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. So it wasn't just about having a physical child, Ishmael. It was about God's intent and purposes and whom he chose. And that brings us to our third key point of the morning. God's election is based upon his power and purpose. When Abraham and Sarah had no hope for a child, when they couldn't possibly reproduce anymore on their own, God said, I can do that. I can produce new birth where there is death in the womb. And that was not merely coincidence. That, Scripture says, the, the Bible is full of examples for us that are meant for our instruction. What would you imagine is illustrated in Isaac's conception? His birth is an illustration of what takes place in our own spiritual conception and birth, which is due fully to God's power and purpose. 
We are spiritually dead. That's what Paul said in the early chapters. In bondage to sin. But God gets the glory by gifting us with faith. We're bringing life where there was death. But he must work a miracle. He must take a dead heart and he must give it life. Just like he took a dead womb and brought forth life. And Paul's opponents could have countered by saying, well, Ishmael wasn't a pure-blooded Jew. It's true. Ishmael is the son of Abraham, but he's not the son of Sarah. He was the son of Hagar, and Hagar was Egyptian. And that's why God didn't choose Ishmael. Well, that's why Paul moves on to the next generation. In this case, it's the twin sons of Isaac, Jacob, Esau, and the words not only so in our verse show that Paul is continuing his point, right? He's, he's trying to layer example upon example. And so he says, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born... And had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Remember third point, God's election is due to his purpose and his power. Not because of works, but because of him, God, who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. This is a perfect example. First, Jacob and Esau born of the same Jewish parents. There's no Ishmael-Isaac issue in this case. Second, the choice of Jacob rather than Esau goes against normal Israelite rules of the firstborn. Under Jewish law, the first and oldest child received the main inheritance of the family. And in the case of twins like Esau and Jacob, the first child born was said to be the oldest. That would have been Esau. And yet God chose Jacob instead of Esau to receive the inheritance from their father Isaac. Why? Was it because Jacob was just a smarter, better looking, friendlier, more charismatic guy? No. Look at verses 11 through 12. Again, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad. Why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. This means that God made his choice before the birth of either Jacob or Esau, and without regard to anything Jacob was going to do, that is so important. First, the word election is mentioned. Second, we learn with regard to election that it is the working out of God's purpose. God's purposes do not depend upon worthiness, works, or outside circumstances. They are his purposes. We're told that they had taken place before Jacob and Esau were even born. They're a great example of what Paul later says in verse 18. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. We'll get to that. Now, you may wonder why we should be concerned about such statements. What significance are they to us? They have much significance. Here's why. Remember how Paul starts chapter 9. He says that not all Israel is Israel. 
If you profess to believe in Christ, if you profess to be redeemed by a sacrifice on the cross, then you are professing to be a spiritual heir, a spiritual child, descendant of Abraham. And Paul's comments as to how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were saved applies directly to you and to me. Like them, we too, elected by our ch- and cho- or chosen by God to become citizens of his kingdom. There are many other passages in Scripture that talk about that. I'll read you one of my favorites, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. This is when they heard the, the good news of the gospel. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And there are many, many other similar passages. And the existence of these types of statements mean that we have to believe in some kind of election. Ultimately, there are really only two possibilities, right? Either God elects those whom he chooses, or he elects those whom he knows through foreknowledge will choose him. The first alternative emphasizes God's sovereignty and man's depravity, consistent with everything we've read so far in Romans, while the second alternative emphasizes man's independence and free will. Now, if we say that God bases his election on foreseeing whether a person will have faith, we undermine Paul's argument in Romans 9. Because Paul is trying to say that God chooses people not on their efforts or their choices, but before they are even born. And simply foreknowing what other people will choose doesn't make sense of Acts 13 saying those who were appointed to eternal life believed. Whenever we see the word foreknow or foreknowledge in Scripture, it is always tied to the concept of relationship. It's not just that God objectively knows who will choose him. He knows as a husband knows his wife or a father has children. He knows with, in other words, yada in, in Hebrew and its similar word in Greek is with an intimacy and a relational knowledge of those whom he chooses to be his son's bride. Revelation says that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life when? Before the foundation of the world. Before God ever even created the earth, before you were ever born. Now, having said that, I, I can anticipate a natural reaction. In fact, it's the same reaction that Wendy and I struggled with about 30 years ago. And that question is this. How can we say that a loving God elects some to salvation before the creation of the world and lets the rest perish? Aren't we saying that he predestines the rest to hell? Doesn't scripture say that God does not delight in the death of the wicked? Well, remember point number one. Men and women are without excuse. So all men and women actively suppress the truth of God. They are in rebellion against God. They exchange the reality of the creation with their own idols and are at war with God. That was point number one. 
And second, please listen closely, Paul anticipates that question in the next verses. And this is crucial. Because Paul addresses the objection that God is not fair, it tells us that we are interpreting Romans 9 correctly. Okay? Does that make sense? If you're going along and you're you're saying, well, wait a second, this means this, that means that, that means that, God's unfair. Paul, by anticipating your objections, that's saying you're drawing the right conclusions You're asking the right questions that are implied by the statements. It could be asked anyway. Why would there be any complaint about unfairness if God elected people on the basis of their choice? There wouldn't be. He would just simply be reacting to you. That would be entirely fair. We're only driven to wonder about God's fairness when we are told that it is God who chooses and that he has chosen some. And so we look at verses 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will, choice, or exertion, works, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Those statements only make sense if God is making his choice outside of any other factors such as human will and human works. And so Paul continues, it therefore does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. People end up in hell not because of some prejudice in God, but because they have rejected and rebelled against God. However, that does not prevent God from being merciful to some. Being merciful to break the power of sin and gift with faith does not make God unfair because everyone deserves and is on the way to hell. Saving some makes God gracious. And that's key point five. God's election of some to salvation is gracious and merciful. And in case you've forgotten those four points before that, here they are again. Men and women choose to rebel against God and thus go to hell. Number two, salvation is a gift, not a guaranteed right or an inherited right. Three, God elects some to salvation based upon his purposes. He receives the glory. Four, either God elects those whom he chooses or he elects those whom he knows through foreknowledge will choose him. And five, God's election of some is merciful and gracious. Now, perhaps a more difficult question than whether God is fair is the question I often hear. After that is, how can then God hold anyone accountable if their salvation is based upon his choice and not their own? How can you say it's my fault, God? If you don't choose to save me and if I'm born in sin due to Adam's sin, 
and fall. It sounds unfair still. <laughs> sounds unfair. And Paul's answer is found in verses 19 to 24. Right? This is the marvel of this chapter. Because Paul throughout anticipates the natural questions that we ask. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If it's all about God, yes, he's merciful, gracious to some, but why does he still find fault then? Who can resist his will? Such a perfect question. And are you ready for the answer? <laughs> but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now that section gives us our final point, which is God is God. It's important that we remember that, because we forget it all the time, and we want to second-guess God. We don't know the end from the beginning. We don't have his holiness, his perfect uh, knowledge and understanding. We want to impose upon him our own standards and ways and expectations and want God to be on our level. But God is God. And that's really what Paul is saying. We're the clay. God is the potter. And I know that may seem harsh to some of you. Those are Paul's words, ultimately the Holy Spirit's words, not just mine. The choices that God makes are according to his own purposes. His choices, his plans are perfect and holy, and he is a good God. But he is God, and we are not. And so, friends, Paul wrote, Paul wrote the first eight chapters of Romans for a reason. He showed us that all men and women are without excuse... They have the clear evidence of God and yet reject it. People go to hell because of their choice to rebel against God, not because at birth God had a line that led to hell and, and placed people on it. And at the same time, however, every person was once condemned to hell for transgressing God's perfect standards, both in Adam and in their own personal lives. According to Romans 3, every person sinned and the wages of sin is death. And what Romans 9 says is that God in his mercy chose to remove some from that penalty of sin by bearing the penalty for them in Jesus Christ and then gifting them with faith in that sacrifice. And still, some of you say, I don't believe our God could be like that. But nevertheless, that is the God of Romans 9 and the rest of Scripture with whom we have to deal. But I know that's not so satisfying. So let me give you a few reasons to have, to leave with more than just a, okay, type of response. 
This is a glorious chapter, not a depressing one. I'll give you some reasons for it. First of all, God's elective grace assures you that God's purposes will not fail. Paul writes Romans 9 not to depress you, friends. Not to distance you, not to make you kind of walk in a deflated way of going, well, God's God and I'm, you know, I'm the clay. God just does with me what he wants. No, that's not been the spirit of Romans at this point. We just came out of the majesty of Romans chapter 8. What he's wanting to tell you is God's purposes will not fail. Since God elects some before the foundation of the world, his word will not fail. If you have heard God's promises and believe his word, you can be sure that as he, his elect, he will be faithful and committed to you. You might ask, am I one of the elect? The answer to that question in, in some ways is easy. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repent, and obey his word. You can only do that if God has chosen to regenerate your heart. And then examine the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. Only the Spirit sanctifies and produces the fruit of the Spirit in God's elected children, his adopted children. Number two, election encourages you in your evangelism. It's often been said that if election is true, then evangelism has no purpose. God's elected people before the foundation of the world, so I don't need to do anything. That is not true at all. You could say the same thing about prayer. If God already knows your needs, why ask him? The answer is that God commands you to preach the good news of the gospel of peace. Just as he commands you to pray. He uses your proclaiming of the gospel to be the way that he saves the elect. Yes, God will save whomever he wills whom he has elected, but he has said in his word that he uses you as his instrument. And because God has commanded it, you must obey and proclaim his word to every man, every woman, so that the Holy Spirit can work through his word to save his people. You don't know who they are. You shouldn't even try to figure it out. I don't think any of you walk around with a big capital E on your forehead. And it's just not the way it works. God knows we don't. And so we treat everyone as possibly someone whom God is drawing to himself. We pray for God's word to go out and be effective. And we are obedient to tell the good news about Christ to every single man, woman, and child with a fervency, with a diligence that says, God may use me to bring salvation. Number three, election gives you the assurance that your salvation is secure. That goes along with point one there. Because your salvation is based upon God's choice and not your own, your occasional doubts don't undermine the work of God that he began in you. He is the author and what? Finisher, says one of the passages in Scripture. The author and finisher of your faith. And he is faithful and just, another passage says, to finish what he began. What greater confidence could you have, right? And then election glorifies God. Look once more at that passage with which we began this morning. 
And we see in the middle of that passage a phrase that we cannot miss. In love, he predestined us. Yes, God is God, and we don't understand things. We need to remember this, though, that rather than accusing God of unfairness or impartiality, the Bible doesn't just leave us hanging, wondering. It says that God acts in love, and that the result of it is to the praise of his glorious grace, is what that passage says to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has, what? Blessed us. He saved you in love to glorify himself, and therefore your response should be to recognize that glory, and it really comes down to that. The only, what's ironic, the only people I ever hear complaining about God's fairness in election are believers. And yet we are the ones to be trusting that God is good and thanking him for his blessing. Is there anything in scripture that would suggest that God is arbitrary or lacking in wisdom? There's everything in the scriptures to remind us that God is good. That he is perfectly wise and knowledgeable. Then we must trust him in his secret counsel. As Ephesians and Romans tell us, he has made the right decisions. And when it comes to the point where we can't figure it all out, we rest on that knowledge and we rest on what Paul says in Romans 9, God is God. And we leave that to him. Paul would later say in Ephesians that as soon as he learned that the people of Ephesus seemed to be the elective God, that he began to pray constantly that they would grow to know God better. And when we realize that God's mercy and grace saved us, not through any of our works, not through any of our choices, then our action too should be the same, should be praise. So Romans 9 isn't negative at all, though it's perhaps one of the hardest chapters in Scripture to accept anyway, given our natural desire to be self-sufficient and independent. I think it's the most encouraging chapter in Scripture because our God is in control. He is God. And praise him that he chose me as sinner while I was dead in my sin. He has made me alive to Christ by the richness of his mercy. I praise him that he chose me as sinner when I did not seek him, when there was no fear of him in me, and I was only suppressing the truth of his existence to my own detriment and eternal destruction. But he declared peace with me and credited the righteousness of Christ to my account. Is there any wonder that the elders before the throne of God give praise unceasingly to him? We were lost, but now we are found. What amazing grace. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your rich grace towards us. It is, as we often sing, amazing grace that you should save a wretch 
such like me. And so, Lord, I, I pray that as we wrestle with chapters like this, that we would come at them with, without partiality and without previous bias, but we would come and we would just settle down, even if we're still struggling today, that we would just settle ourselves before your word and we would ask for understanding, we would ask for trust. For Lord, we know ultimately that you are good and that your purpose will stand. And I am, for one, thankful that I serve a God whose purposes cannot be thwarted, cannot be frustrated, who accomplishes all that he intends and begins, and part of that is my own salvation. And so, Lord, I'm so thankful that I can't fail and mess it up as I do so many other things. And I know that we all are thankful in that regard. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.